0: Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Coincidence is a funny thing. Thinking about a friend moments before they call. Meeting the love of your life because you both happen to be late for a train. Carl Jung coined the term synchronicity for what he believed to be profoundly meaningful coincidences. While I subscribe to a lot of his ideas, I'm not going to go too in-depth this episode and seek a deeper meaning... I just have four true stories of uncanny coincidence. Our first story is part of Hollywood folklore from the late 20th century. I named the Extraordinarium the Extraordinarium because I intended to furnish it with extraordinary tales. Extraordinary people, extraordinary feats, circumstances, events, intentions, inventions and even failures. And there's plenty of material without need to augment my repertoire of stories with anything of woo-woo or paranormal origin. I'm not decrying those who believe, nor any media hosts on any media format who disseminate tales of the paranormal. In fact, I'm quite a fan of a good ghost story myself. And anyone who's observed the effect dog whistles have on our canine friends would at least have to ask themselves, if there's more going on than we can detect with our very low-resolution sensory equipment, then how much more? No, my reasoning for avoiding such topics is the plethora of radio, TV programs, YouTube videos, books, podcasts, etc. already dedicated to the topic. Trust me, I'm not needed here. But every now and then, you find a story that crosses over. No pun intended, and whether you interpret the information as evidence of paranormal phenomena or just a series of uncanny coincidences is entirely up to you. As long as those coincidences are factual, documented and extraordinary, then there's room for them to be exhibited in the Extraordinarium. And what I'm about to tell you is one such story. In 1977, screenwriter Todd Carroll was commissioned to adapt the Mordecai Richler novel The Incomparable Atuk into a film script. The story is about an Inuit trapper who meets a beautiful New York correspondent who is on assignment in his village. A besotted Took, follows her back to New York City, and without going into too much detail, the mayhem begins. In 1981, when the script was complete, it was forwarded to comedian and actor John Belushi of Blues Brothers fame. Belushi liked the script and the concept and agreed to play the role of took. Unfortunately, this would never come to pass. In 1982, Belushi, at the tender age of 33, died from a drug overdose before filming began, the screenplay was shelved for a couple of years until in 1987, United Artists decided to revive the idea and they had someone in mind to play a took. Comedian Sam Kinison. Kinison agreed and the film went into production the following year. Now if you were a Kinison fan back in the 80s, you don't need to be told he was something of a wild child, irreverent, argumentative and highly strung. This added to his substance abuse led to on-set clashes resulting in the movie being abandoned with only one scene having been filmed, and this is where you may start to detect a pattern. Kinison, you see? Well, he died soon afterwards too. Kinison was on his way to star in a sold-out performance when a drunk driver hit his car head-on. At first, Kinison seemed okay, alighting the vehicle and walking around, but it became apparent he had suffered more damage than he first realised. Legend has it that he could be heard telling someone or something only he could see, quote, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. There was a pause before he asked, but why? Then, after a moment, he just said, okay, 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 and relaxed before dying. Kinnison died in 1992, well after the project had been abandoned and perhaps no connection would ever have been made if it weren't for the script making its way to legendary comedian John Candy. Candy liked the concept and agreed to play the role of a Took, but before filming was scheduled to start, Candy died of a heart attack at just 43 years old. Now rumours of a cursed script were beginning to make the rounds, with some people hesitant to work on any future studio projects. Except this one guy, as they say. In 1996, comedian Chris Farley was approached by United Artists to play a Took. By all accounts, he seemed quite keen, but in late 1997, Chris Farley, on a drug and alcohol bender, had a heart attack. Like John Belushi, he was just 33. Proponents of the cursed script angle also frequently mention the deaths of comedy writer Michael O'Donohue, who had worked on the script at various points. He had died of a brain hemorrhage at just 54. And actor Phil Hartman, who was to play the film's villain in the Chris Farley version, but was to become a victim of domestic violence when he was murdered by his alcoholic wife, aged just 49. Cursed or otherwise, the script has not seen the light of day since the late 1990s. If it ever does again, and the lead actor dies before it can be made, well, then I might start to believe in a curse, but for now... I think given the lifestyles of the four men chosen to play a Took, it's statistically quite likely that they would have died young anyway. Their involvement with the making of a Took, just before they departed, probably a coincidence. Having said that, it's quite an extraordinary coincidence, you have to admit. A technique used for identification... By police and other law enforcement agencies the world over, is the ubiquitous fingerprint database. At the time of this recording in 2021, fingerprint identification still solves approximately 10 times more crimes than the more expensive and time-consuming DNA profiling. Of the millions of fingerprints on file, no two are identical. There are misconceptions that fingerprinting as a means of identification emerged out of late 19th and early 20th century law enforcement, but in fact, fingerprints, as a means of authenticating documents or signing contracts, have been used by ancient civilizations including the Chinese, the Greeks and the Babylonians. Fingerprints were studied and occasionally used as a means of identification in Europe from about the 16th century on. But I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of historical detail. The mental picture most of us have is of Sherlock Holmes studying fingerprints with a magnifying glass. And that probably starts with one Juan Vicetich, an Argentinian police officer who in 1892 began keeping fingerprints on file. In less than a year, fingerprints had been used to identify Francisca Rojas, who had murdered her two children and tried to blame a neighbour. Without fingerprint evidence, her testimony may have been enough to see the neighbour convicted, but, faced with the evidence, she would ultimately confess. From here, the idea of fingerprinting started catching on, but it had a rival. Created in 1879 by Alphonse Bertillon, the Bertillon Criminal Identification System catalogued physical measurements and other biometrics, along with photography and a physical description. Scars, tattoos, that kind of thing. It certainly had its flaws, it was basically useless as a means of identifying growing children and adolescents, and a mistake taking measurements could leave enough of a discrepancy to see people misidentified. And these flaws in the Bertillon system were never better highlighted than in the case of Will and William West. When Will West was convicted of a minor crime in 1903, he was to be incarcerated at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Upon arrival, legend has it, "'The clerk asked him, "'What have you done now?' "'To which a perplexed Will West replied "'that it was his first-ever conviction. "'The clerk, sure that he recognised West, "'went over him with the Bertillon instruments "'and referred to the formula, "'which produced a match. "'A file was located for William West,' and it seemed to the clerk that he had the right man. But the clerk became less certain of himself when he happened to look at the reverse side of the record card and discovered that William West was already a guest at Leavenworth. For life, having been convicted of murder in 1901 and processed by the very same clerk. Baffled, the clerk investigated further and discovered there were two William Wests. The incarcerated William West had almost identical biometrics to Will West, and his photo at a glance could be mistaken for the new prisoner. This resulted in Will West and William West having their fingerprints taken and compared. I could pretend I'm more knowledgeable than I am and speak of whirl patterns and loop patterns, etc., but the upshot is that the patterns bore no resemblance. The story of Will and William West wasn't the sole reason for fingerprinting's rise to prominence and the Bertillon method falling from favour, but it certainly gave things a little shove in the right direction. And it's just the kind of extraordinary set of circumstances that so frequently become the standard tale used to define a transitional period in history. We don't know what Jim Springer's life may have been like had he not been Jim Springer. That is to say, if he had been raised by his biological parents. But in 1940, at just three weeks old, he was adopted by a couple named the Springers of Pequot, Ohio, who named him James. Jim, for short. Jim and his brother Larry grew up in the best loving home the Springers could provide, along with their much-loved family dog, Toy. As a student, Jim wasn't particularly interested in English as a subject and had a dislike of spelling. He did enjoy mathematics, though, and was a keen woodworker, a hobby he began doing outside school hours in his spare time. At the age of eight, Jim's mother decided it was time he knew the truth. Jim was told he was adopted and that the only other information they had about his biological family was that Jim was the survivor of twins. Jim took the news well, his family loved him, and after all, they were the only family he had ever known. And life went on. Jim, apart from periodic headaches and being a habitual nail-biter, was pretty healthy and happy. He grew to be a strapping lad of six feet and weighed 180 pounds, or 183 centimetres and 81 kilos, to those who speak metric. He got a job in security, becoming a deputy sheriff, and would meet a woman named Linda, who he eventually married. The marriage unfortunately didn't last, but Jim found solace in the arms of a new love, Betty. In good time, Betty and Jim had a baby, a son that they named James, James Allen Springer, and life seemed complete. Then came the phone call. A man had tracked Jim down through court records. The man was also named Jim. Jim Lewis, and much to Jim Springer's amazement, Jim Lewis was the twin that Jim Springer had believed died in infancy. As the two men spoke, they began to discover similarities between them. They both drove Chevrolet motor cars, for example. They drank the same brand of beer, smoked the same brand of cigarettes, and even regularly holidayed at the same beach in Florida. They soon agreed to meet in person and realized they only lived about 40 miles apart and had probably crossed each other's paths before. Both suffered headaches and chewed their nails, and Jim Lewis, while not a deputy sheriff like his twin, worked as a security guard. These are a strange enough set of coincidences on their own, but the more the two men got to know each other, the more they uncovered about each other's backstory, and it is truly uncanny. You see, Jim Lewis was also adopted at three weeks old by a family from Ohio Who named him James, Jim for short. He also grew up with an adopted brother who was also named Larry and Jim and Larry were very fond of the family dog who was also named Toy. He was a keen woodworker, good at maths and hated spelling. Jim Lewis also grew to six feet 180 pounds so that's probably not such an odd thing if they're twins but he also married a woman called Linda. Like Jim Springer Jim Lewis's marriage to Linda didn't last, but just like his twin brother, Jim Lewis found new love, with a woman named, you guessed it, Betty. Jim and Betty Lewis, just like Jim and Betty Springer, had a baby, and also just like Jim and Betty Springer, they named him James Allen. These extraordinary similarities led to them taking part in a study. Dr. Thomas Bruchard of the University of Minnesota would find that the twins' IQ, medical histories, the results of personality tests and even their brainwaves were practically identical. A seemingly clear win for nature in the nature versus nurture argument. The odds of all these similarities being coincidence have been calculated. Half a million to one against the similarities being mere coincidence. So obviously, if it's not nurture as the two grew up isolated from one another, and the odds of coincidence being statistically impossible, clearly the nature argument must have it in the bag, yes? It must be genetic. In the blood, as they say. However, if I may play devil's advocate for a moment, it seems to me that there just might be something else at play. Being named James, Jim for short, living so close together, being adopted by a family at almost the same time, and having a brother called Larry have nothing to do with genetics whatsoever, those decisions would have been made by the adoptive parents, and quite possibly the naming of the family dog too. But that's only my opinion. However you care to view it, as a set of coincidences, you have to admit, they are quite extraordinary. The final extraordinary tale for this episode is a reasonably well-known story that has popped up intermittently over the years in all forms of media, beginning with an article in Time magazine published in 1964, and has persisted through to social media such as Facebook where it periodically does the rounds. The story centres around an extraordinary set of coincidences involving two former US presidents, I think I just felt a shift in the collective consciousness, as a good percentage of you already guessed where this is going, and I do feel a little lazy for not seeking a more obscure topic. Having said that, not everybody has heard of these coincidences, and it would be very remiss of me not to mention them. The two US presidents involved were Abraham Lincoln and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and the coincidences begin right there, with both their names. The surnames Lincoln and Kennedy both have seven letters. Lincoln and Kennedy were both elected to Congress in years ending in 46, 1846 and 1946 respectively. Both men were runners-up to be nominated Vice President in years ending in 56, and both men would be elected to the Presidency in years ending in 60. Both were interested in civil rights, with Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation and Kennedy delivering a speech on radio and television known as the Report to the American People on Civil Rights. Kennedy's reports were submitted in 1963, and the Emancipation Proclamation became law in 1863. Both men married women in their 20s while they were in their 30s. Both men lost a son during their presidency, and both sons' names, William Wallace Lincoln and Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, had 21 letters altogether, seven letters each for the first, middle, and last name. And on the topic of family, both men were assassinated in the presence of their wives. There's a bullet point on this list that claims both the assassins were born in years ending in 39, but on calling this out. John Wilkes Booth was in fact born in 1838. But both assassins were known by three names, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald. Both names comprising of 15 letters. Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theatre. Kennedy was shot in a Ford motor car. A Lincoln, as it should happen. John Wilkes Booth ran from Ford's Theatre and was caught in a barn. Some say warehouse. Either way, it was a storage building. Lee Harvey Oswald fled a book depository, another kind of warehouse or storage facility, and he was caught in a theatre. The Assassins were both Southerners, and speaking of Southerners, the two men to succeed the departed Presidents were both Southerners too, who were born in years ending in o eight and shared the same last name, Johnson. Andrew Johnson being born in 1808, and Lyndon Johnson born in 1908. Incidentally, Andrew and Lyndon both have six letters. Both Presidents were shot in the head on a Friday, and both Assassins were themselves assassinated before their trials. Another coincidence often mentioned is that of Kennedy's secretary, Mrs. Lincoln, and Lincoln's secretary, Ms. Kennedy, both of whom warned the respective presidents not to go to the locations where they would meet their fates. But while Kennedy did indeed have a secretary named Lincoln, there is no evidence to support any of the rest of it. Still, it's a pretty impressive list, Quite a few people over the years have said it's mere coincidence and I would say to them, that's kind of the point. It is indeed a coincidence. An extraordinary coincidence. You've been listening to Mr Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, Hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.